Nie pasuje tutaj. I don't belong here. It was what I wanted to stand up and say at the table. It was 2021. I was in the middle of this very small town on the west coast of Poland, which is absolutely stunning, to be fair. Surrounded by a group of men who were very clearly conversing about me, giggling about me, making I don't know what kinds of comments, directing their eyes towards me in slits sometimes, leaning back and laughing, and having me feel like I wanted the ground to swallow me up or to jump up and run out of the place, screaming at them all that they were the shower of shites that I felt that they were. When I say a shower of shites, that's a very Irish phrase, but it brings a little bit of lightness to the story that I'm sharing right now. Falcha. Welcome to Connected Communication, a podcast exploring the intriguing interplay between language, culture and the brain through the lens of self-awareness. I'm your host, Christine. It's October 2023. This month has been Diversity Awareness Month around the world, from what I understand. A focus for people and organisations on the diversities around them. The podcast has focused on linguistic diversity, language diversity and accent diversity. If you're someone who comes back every week, you may have heard the past few episodes talking a bit about belonging, moving from feeling excluded to finding a sense of belonging and togetherness. The privilege that some of us now acknowledge having won as my guest Heather said, the linguistic lottery. The ability to see beyond an accent or exclude for the language effect, as two of my other guests said. What I found really interesting when I was listening back to the different interviews that I did was the thread that wove through them all. None of them know each other, as far as I'm aware. They had no idea that I had interviewed them all. I interviewed them at different times and yet all of them made this connection to seeing beyond the bias, beyond the accent, beyond the language to find that sense of inclusion. Now you hear a lot of people say, oh, I don't see colour, I don't see hijabs, I don't see sexual orientation, I don't see any of that, I see beyond it. They may, be, they may not use the word beyond, but I've heard this over and over again. I don't see, I don't see, I don't see. And I'll tell you the truth. I thought it a number of years ago. Well, I don't see colour, but that's not true. I see colour. I see a hijab. I see sexual orientation when it's demonstrative on a person. I see, I hear accents. I hear linguistic differences. As a qualified English teacher who taught for a number of years and was an examiner, of course, I hear what we call mistakes and error in communication. I see them all, I hear them all. The biases for me sometimes are unconscious and they come to the fore becoming more conscious and sometimes are already very conscious. But I make a choice. A guy called Stephen Frost 
has a very famous saying about inclusion. And the reason that I know that it's Stephen Frost who came up with it is because I learned an alternative to it. A number of years ago, in 2020, actually, when everything started shutting down and I started exploring the free training and webinars with the Neuroleadership Institute before actually doing a, a training course with them. I heard the statement, if you're not actively including, you're probably accidentally excluding. Which my guess is that coming from Stephen Frost, a world renowned diversity and inclusion expert, was the equivalent of unless you consciously include, you'll unconsciously exclude. Inclusion is a choice. I don't know at what point in my life it became an important choice for me. I've tried to decide and think about it. Not decide, I've tried to figure it out, spend some time thinking about it. I grew up for the first part of my life in a town called Navan in Ireland. And I started school very young. I begged my mother to send me to preschool at about two and a half. And that was after, I think, some, the equivalent maybe of a crash. And then I started primary school, what we call primary school, at, at four. And in my second year in primary school, I had a big teacher. I remember as big anyway. I won't say her name. And I got a maths question wrong. And she hit me on my hand. Which, of course, frightened me and then made me afraid of maths and made me think that I was never going to be able to do a maths question again, which is a different story of a mindset change that I'll share with you maybe on another podcast. But I told my dad. And as I got older, my dad told me what he did after that happened. He went in to the classroom without her knowing that he was going into the classroom. And this was uh, the, the mid late to late 80s. So it was probably easier to go into classrooms than as a man in a primary school. He went into the classroom when we were all out playing in the yard and made sure the lights were switched off in the classroom, went in and went down on his hunkers inside the door and waited for the teacher to come in. And when she came in, he looked up at her from his hunkers down with his, his knees bent way down in a very low squat when I say on, on his hunkers. And he said to her, hit me. And what he told me, she said, was, what, Mr. Milani, what are you talking about? What, stand up, please, Mr. Milani. Hit me. I'm smaller than you. And then he had whatever conversation he needed to have with her about what she had done to me. It didn't really work. She did hit me again afterward, uh, not, not th that same day afterwards, but she clipped me another time across the head for, for something different in the cloakroom one day. But I, I wonder if this is where I began to feel the sense of exclusion. There was a big girl in that school as well who used to tell us that there was a scary man hiding behind one of the shelter buildings where we used to play. So these senses of fear and exclusion that started to be created in me, I, that's, that's my guess that maybe they began then. Now, as I got a little bit older, when I say I got a little bit older, a couple of years later, my 
without me going into too much detail, my parents separated and we moved. And a couple of things happened where a lot of people would say my voice was taken away or I stopped being listened to in some way and I learned to not trust inside myself and not trust m what I believed to be true and what I understood to be true. But when we moved to Dundalk, I went to a new school and in that new school there was a girl in my class who was from a very poor family. And I remember Christmas was coming and I asked her what they were doing for Christmas and did they get their Christmas tree yet because we had got our Christmas tree and I was so excited about my Christmas tree and I was seven at this age, stage maybe just going on eight. And I remember her telling me that they don't get Christmas trees. They don't really do Christmas presents and celebrate. And my heart was broken. I couldn't understand how somebody wouldn't have the chance and the opportunity to put up a Christmas tree, to feel the joy of putting up a Christmas tree. Now, Christmas was made magical for us in my house. Santa used to write me presents in this beautiful calligraphy. Grandad would dress up as Santa and go around the parish. Well, not around the parish, but around the, the five or six houses in the countryside area that we lived. And get all the children going to bed because Santa was coming and he couldn't see them or he couldn't leave the gift. So I invited her to come to my house to put up our decorations and our Christmas tree with us. And she came. And when all of that was finished and she went home, a couple, of, I don't know if it was a couple of days, a couple of weeks later, you know, time shifts memories a little bit and changes them. But she came to school with this little ceramic angel. Tiny, small ceramic angel stood with beautiful wings. And she gave it to me to thank me for including her and for the beautiful time that she had had putting up our Christmas decorations with us. And I'm pretty sure I still have it. I have a little trinket box, a little like uh, Voldemort <laughs> in the Harry Potter movies, although not quite as sinister. I believe I still have it packed away in my stuff. But that's the first memory I have of learning the impact of actively including somebody. And like I said, I learned that I needed to over-explain and to justify myself over a number of years, that I needed to prove that I had the knowledge and the evidence that I'm right. And it's something that I still battle with every, with every day. And maybe not every day, that's a bit excessive. But knowing that the knowledge and the experience that I have and not being acknowledged for it for many years was something that made me feel excluded made me not feel a sense of belonging. And so I found my sense of belonging with a wonderful group of friends who were the other misfits <laughs> in their families or in their areas. But even in that group of friends, whom are, some of them are still my dear friends, I, was, I, I didn't fully belong, although I never felt like I didn't belong. They were all grungers and rockers and and uh, all those other words that people label people who listen to certain types of music with. And I'd come in with my kappa bottoms on me and my big, massive 
puffy feeler jacket, maybe a basketball top or a wood tang jumper, a pair of fat feeler runners. <laughs> We'd walk around the town with me in my feeler, in my puffy raver type hip hop stuff and them in their rocker stuff. And yeah, we looked aside, but they were my best friends. And they, with them, I had a sense of belonging. I'm talking about this because when we actively include, we notice the people around us. We become aware of our unconscious biases. We become aware of this system one and system two thinking that Daniel Kahneman talked about in his research. And I know he did the research with somebody else. I think this, the name begins with T. And I'm sorry to the person for not remembering it. But that active, immediate, biased response. Oh, there's black hair and brown eyes. Do I like it? Do I not? What's my instant decision about whether I like it or I don't? Or the system two thinking where we take a little bit longer to think about something, like the maths problem that they give as an example. The unconscious biases that we have have been explored and researched, researched, of course, by many different people. Too much to be able to go into depth on them. But one model that I do love is, again, from the Neuroleadership Institute. And a bit more of what I'm going to talk about in a couple of minutes on the episode comes from some training that I've done with them. And not just training that I've done with them, actually, my own life experience and other readings that I've done. But a model of bias that I have learned about is the SEEDS model of bias. And you can look it up, you can Google it and find out about it. The S stands for similarity. Oh, look, there's that Irish person. They're similar to me. I'm going to go to them first. The E stands for expedience. How can I do this faster? What's a way for me to get this done more quickly and more easily? The E stands for experience, or the second E stands for experience. Oh, I've done this before, so the way that I did it before is definitely going to work in this way now. The D stands for distance. How close or far is somebody or something from me? And is it temporary? Is it not? How easy is it for me to connect with them or not? And the final S is for safety. Oh, I'm not going to take a risk there. I'm going to stay safe, stay where I'm comfortable and not do anything to change or rock the boat. And that model is based on over 150 different biases that they've d discovered in their research or I suppose they haven't discovered them all. They've collected a variety of different research on research papers on this and put them into this model. And other unconscious biases can come up in what Richard Lewis calls our cultural black holes. And I, I've used this example before on a, an episode, but if you can imagine the black of your eye, the dark part of your eye, this is the way that he describes it in the model. It's really well depicted. So you're looking at an eye and you can see that black part down in the middle, that deep depth that you find when you look into somebody's eye. Some say that you can see the, the galaxy or the universe when you look into somebody's eye like that. You see the, huge, the whole person. But the cultural black holes he talks about are those deeply ingrained beliefs that become our perceptions and our biases as we get older. That are very, very hard to change. Because they're so deeply ingrained. 
very, very hard to change. It doesn't mean it's impossible. And people say that we are wired to connect. So if we bring this back to inclusion, to being aware of diversity, to accent diversity, accent inclusion, linguistic diversity and linguistic inclusion, to teaching ourselves to be able to see beyond an accent and see beyond the language to the whole person. It helps to understand what happens when we don't actively include. Now, this applies to organisations, to teams and to groups as equally as it does to individuals. I have as much of a responsibility personally to actively include other people as the person sitting beside me has to actively include me. But not everybody's capable of it in the same way. Neurodivergencies mean that some people don't recognise when someone doesn't feel included. They can't pick up on those social cues. Different cultures show exclusion and the feelings of exclusion in different ways. And also, what we might think to be a, a cue of exclusion is not necessarily one. Non-expressive cultures, those that sit quietly with maybe stern faces when they're taking in information, doesn't mean that they don't feel included or interested. It's just the way that they've been trained to listen. So all of these things have an impact. But what research has found is that the effects of feeling excluded and feeling a sense of exclusion on the human are things like a spiral of thinking. So what happens is that the reasoning capacity in our brain is reduced. We're not as capable of intelligent thought as the Neuroleadership Institute says. Why is that? Because it's only my brain that's doing the thinking. I'm not allowing in any other perspective. I've got blinkers on, so to speak. And when I, I, I start to only have my brain doing the reasoning, my capacity for that is reduced. And then what happens? I move into an act of self-exclusion. So a moment ago I said that inclusion is an act that is important for the group, but also important for the individual. Yes, I need to self-include. I need to take actions and behave in certain ways that make me include myself in conversations, in debate, in discussion, in discomfort. But if I'm coming from a place of feeling excluded, if the, the, the hormone levels in my brain are working in such a way that I feel defeated, I don't feel like I want to cooperate or connect, if I feel like I am not part of the group, then I can't self-include. I can't regulate my behaviour as effectively. And this was somebody called Baumeister, I believe, who, who discovered this in research. So they, they did some research over the choices that people would make in terms of sugary foods and what we might call healthier foods. I might become more easily frustrated. And I'll be honest with you now, I notice this in myself. I, I don't believe in the standard thinking that we are all wired to connect and be connected all the time. I like my time alone. Since I was a very young child, I have played alone. I used to spend hours in my bedroom on the floor with a group of army men, plastic army men, 
And, and I'm just thinking now, actually, as I say this, I wonder if that's why I like army men so much now as an adult. <laughs> but they were plastic. <laughs> Side thought there, listeners. I went off on a little bit of a, 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 a meander from my thinking. OK, bringing it back. I used to play for hours on the ground with a group of plastic army men, a load of dinky cars, the small little cars that you can collect and cardboard. And I built myself petrol stations and a variety of airports and police stations and different things like that long before you were able to buy all these things or, well, you were probably able to buy them, but we couldn't afford them at the time. I like being alone. I need to be alone for a considerable period of time. But I also recognise that if I spend too much time alone, my brain starts to dysregulate. I, de I definitely get more easily frustrated and I'll be in my apartment because I'm working by myself from home. I work online and I'll get angry or annoyed at something trivial and say to myself, where is this coming from? I'm awful frustrated. Then I realise, yeah, I haven't really had any human connection for a couple of days other than social media and maybe a few messages. I better go out and have a chat with somebody. When we feel excluded, life can seem meaningless. We can feel like there's a lethargy, totally aimless. There's an avoidance of self-awareness. There's, there's a lack of emotion, a lack of general well-being. We feel a sense of maybe social anxiety. We, we can get lonely and depression can result. Now, I'm not going to go in and talk about depression and share on it, maybe in another episode. What I will say is that I do have my own experience, having been diagnosed as clinically depressed as a teenager. I understand how to take myself out of these excluded feelings. And I understand the work that it takes. It's hard to self-include and it's harder to other include when you're feeling excluded. But if you are somebody who is on the other side of linguistic bias, of accent bias, of being othered in the organisation because of how you speak, because of how you communicate. Find an ally. Connect with somebody who has your back, who will support you. Find a way to self-include. The brain is biased. It's not the human. My brain automatically, like I said, goes into system one thinking. Oh, there's something I like that's something that's similar. It's something that makes me feel connected and good. I'm just going to go with that. It's easier because the brain doesn't like to work hard. But making anything a habit, particularly if it's a new habit, is hard. I know today everybody wants things to be easy. But everything isn't easy. But that doesn't mean that it's not possible. To make new habits stick, we have to repeat them. There has to be consistency over time. We need to feel good about them. So when you self-include, whether it's bringing yourself into something in the organisation or when you group include as an organisation, create a policy, create a, a behaviour or new habits for your leadership to embody 
and the rest of the organization to start to follow suit, reward for it. Reward those who are actively inclusive. Notice when people include others in a meeting because they have paid attention and recognize that someone doesn't feel like they, they are there or that they have a place or a space to be there. Watch your eye contact. This is actually something that I do very regularly. Whatever it is, I don't know. But in conversation often, when people are communicating with me and I'm in a group, they tend to rest their eyes on me and they don't look at anybody else. And that makes me feel really uncomfortable. I feel actually exclusive and like everybody else is being excluded. A very simple way to deal with that is to look the person directly in the eye and then look at everybody else very slowly. So what it actually does is it creates a mirror neuron effect and the person turns their eyes towards everybody else. And if they continuously come back to you and get stuck on you, then do the same thing again. But this time linger a little bit longer on the other people. If you're the leader in a meeting room, regardless of your accent, your language or your background, notice this. Notice when people are talking. Where does the eye contact land? Does it stay fixed on one person? And if it does, what can you do with your eyes or even with the palm of your hand to direct the eye contact around the room? If you're not actively including, you'll unconsciously exclude. Thousands of organisations around the world have diversity and inclusion policies now. The majority of those policies do not include anything about accent bias or language bias. At the moment, they are not actively inclusive. They are unconsciously exclusive or excluding. Inclusion is a choice. A choice that every individual can make and an action that every individual can take. But if you're in a large organisation and inclusion is not active, particularly when it comes to recognising a person's linguistic and accent diversity and celebrating it, the majority of people in the organisation are unconsciously excluding. What actions can you take this week and moving forward to actively include and see beyond the accent to the human being behind it.